Benjamin Franklin once said, the bitterness of poor quality remains long after the sweetness of low price is forgotten. The fact is, quality matters. Join us as we make quality fun, interesting, and accessible to companies of all levels. Quality Matters is a must-listen for all things quality. Listen in, ask questions, and get back to doing what matters most. Quality Matters, brought to you by Texas Quality Assurance, where quality management gets simplified. Well, hello and welcome back to the Quality Matters podcast brought to you by Texas Quality Assurance. I am Kyle Chambers and we are continuing the mini series on a consultation process. Again, my goal here is to walk you through what and how we go through a consultation process with clients of our own this comes from my own personal experience doing this going back to about 2009 2010 when i first started uh kind of dipping my toes in the uh quality management water now any of you that are new to listening kind of brief run through of my background it's like i'm a computer geek you, you see behind me right so these are some of my uh my old favorites you used to use you know heck we got show my age we got ms dos 5 yeah okay you know Keep it there for nostalgia's sake. So I'm a computer geek, but got tossed into health and safety years back. Funny enough, up here, that is the actual binder I put together starting around about 2010 when I was uh, put, you know, full time into safety. And literally what I did is I went through, identified all of our business uh, processes, identified all of the, the work that the guys did. And then I went to the OSHA CFRs, you know, 1910 for general industry. And I printed out every single page of the each CFR that was potentially applicable to our shop and went through and read every single CFR line by line, highlighting specific ones that I knew were applicable to our shop. Um, and so, yeah, that's the same binder. I, I just kind of keep it for nostalgia's sake. Honestly enough, ever so often to do pull it out and reference it because even being a computer geek, oh man, I'd much rather read physical paper than uh, than a computer screen. Uh, any case, that's kind of uh, my my background and where I come from. So when I say that these are the tools that, that I have learned, I've learned these things the very hard way. I have... Uh, Lots of lots of pain and struggle to, to kind of figure out how to do this stuff and to do it well. But I'm really, really confident what we've got figured out here. So we kind of finished up last time talking about well, talking like it's the biggest thing you do is you talk to people. You understand what they do and how they do it. Your goal is not to come in and change their business. Your goal is not, again, if you're doing this for your own company, let's say you are oh so lucky to have had the quality management hat tacked on to uh, whatever your job duty is otherwise, because that is honestly the way it almost always happens. What are you going to do? How are you going to handle it? Your goal is not to build the ISO system and re-engineer our business to be ISO compliant. <laughs> now, nah. your goal is to make as few changes as possible to get as much benefit as possible to be compliant with the standard. Because if you're compliant with the standard, your business has some repeatability. And if it has some repeatability and you can do the same thing over and over and over in different ways, you can bring new people in. You can afford to lose some of your more senior people as they retire or whatever, or move somewhere else or do whatever they do. Your business can be self-sustaining. And that is what we want. A self-sustaining business can be improved on really, really well also. 
Um, you know, we were actually talking about something. Uh, my wife and I were uh, getting lunch yesterday, and what we were talking about is some stuff going on at our church. Love the church we're at. Um, they're going through a, a real big kind of shift and change right now. You know, they had uh, the old pastor leave. We had an interim guy for a year. It's kind of weird. And we've kind of got like the new folks in. They're putting in some new structures, new organizations. We're getting a new youth program and all these things going. And so it's kind of funny. We're looking at it on one hand. They're like, well, literally five minutes after we made the decision, like this happened just a Sunday, five minutes after we made the decision for, you know, an event, it's planned and announced at service. And like, man, we can move and get stuff done real quick. But as good as that is to be able to, to pivot so quickly, it is a little scary because at some point in time, we have to have a little more rigidity and a little more structure in there. Because while we all feel good about this decision, if it is too easy to make a change, you can make a lot of bad changes really quickly. Um, so these are some of the things that we'll, we'll kind of talk about as we get more into the continuum improvement and corrective action um, parts of our, of our management system. Um, so yes, having minimal structure, minimal definition can be great. It can open up you up to a lot of harm that you're not aware of until after the fact. So, you know, going back to the church thing, that's one of the things right now that they are trying to put in place is this group and kind of organization and rules and, and such to kind of prevent those things. But right now, we're just trying to move fast and make some make some progress. You'll find the same thing is true in your business that maybe today before we've got it all in place, we're just trying to move forward, get some crap done and do well with it. But hey, we know at some point here soon in the next three to six months, we're going to have a little more rigidity and we'll have to handle it that way. All right. So the last clause we dropped off on before, again, taking kind of a 20,000 foot view here of how we go through the uh, the management system. Well, really not quite so high. And we're talking about document information. Document information is one of these kind of weird processes. Um, it used to be called control of documents, control of records. And, you know, we all see on our forms, we've got the this form is uncontrolled when printed and all these different things. I'll be honest with you, it's really rare that I've ever in an audit, either being the auditor or the auditee or representing a customer in an audit, that I've had an auditor care too much in recent years about the term, uh, about seeing that little controlled and uncontrolled statement on the document. And I only make a point there because 15, 20 years ago, that was really, really critical because our computer systems weren't so advanced as they are now. Um, <clears throat> well, I, I really, I, I dislike some of the way that the document information was worded in 9001. I do like the vagueness of it. And here's an example. We've got um, a customer that's on our QMS software, and they also have their own accounting software. Believe me, I don't want to do accounting software. Not the world I want to run into. We have discussed trying to jump into a job shop system. We're building an LMS right now, but never touching accounting. In any case, uh, one of the things that happened in their last external audit is they had an auditor insist that their purchase order had a form number on it and a version number on it. And I'm like, you realize that purchase order is generated by your computer software and that computer software you don't control. Let's just say it's QuickBooks. It's not theirs isn't QuickBooks, but everyone knows QuickBooks. So do you have any control over when QuickBooks updates your purchase order templates? 
Not really. I mean, yeah, you can kind of customize a few things on there and whatnot, but I mean, it's kind of like once that purchase order is generated, it's generated, it runs from QuickBooks, and, and we kind of let QuickBooks control the document. And this auditor wanted to see a form number and version number on all of them. So we actually put a form number, version number on all of the forms that come out of, of our software for these guys as well. Again, kind of satisfy this auditor's requirement. Personally, I think uh, they, they might ought to have fought back harder against the auditor, but you know, we're not involved in a consultation project with them, so it's it's what it is. Um, but this is where the document and information vagueness can kind of come in handy. And you can have a little paragraph in your procedure that says for forms or docu document information that are generated via software systems, um, the control of that form is determined by the software system itself. And generally, that works well for us. Um, but document information can just be a weird thing. It's like, okay, well, let's say that we did a quick analysis from Microsoft Excel. And we pulled in data from two or three different sources and ran a big pivot chart on it. Okay, well, that's that's kind of my report. And I, I did that right then. And maybe we show that to the auditor and show how we're doing on our KPIs. But then he wants to see the analysis of it in all these different ways. Well, again... You know, you can put some different clauses in the procedure to kind of help with that. Um, but these are the type of things that we want to understand what's going on is we want to know, do we have any ad hoc reporting, any impromptu reporting that we use? Do we have software systems that generate documented information that we keep? You know, what do we have? You want to identify all of these sources. Once all of these sources are identified, then you can really begin to look at it to see how are these things controlled. If it is out of your control, then you can make a statement. These systems are out of our control for version history, such and such and such and such. And as such, we, we cannot you know, control them. And so that is document and information. The real big thing on document and information that it matters is when, let's say we have a drawing. We've got a drawing of a component. Fantastic. I need to know when that dot drawing was last updated. Hopefully, you are not revising the drawings for the widgets you make on a regular um, impromptu basis. That would be uh, very detrimental for the organization. You want to track those changes. You want someone with the competent authority to approve them. You want to know what it used to be versus what it is today. Same thing with our procedures. If we're updating procedures very impromptu, you know, that doesn't allow us to have a stable system. So these are the things that we really care about is um, those things that are within our control are therefore the ones we want to control. If it is out of your control, well, then that is uh, pretty close to the definition of insanity to try to control it. So we want to look at it. We want to know what are all of the various sources of document and information for our customer, for our company. Um these could be document information records that might come from our customers. Okay. Well, how do we track our customer requirements? What if a customer sends us one of their proprietary drawings? Well, what about our shipping manifest that we send out? Do we keep a copy? Do we want to keep a copy? Do we need to keep a copy? We're just going to go through all of these and kind of identify it. And you can make a real simple um, matrix on it to kind of get started. I don't always advise maybe keeping that matrix because then that in itself becomes another piece of document information that has to be maintained and updated. Um, but what I like to do instead is go through that document information procedure and just kind of classify for procedures. We do this for, you know, uh, inspection forms. We do this for drawings. We do this for shipping records. We do this, you know, maybe generalize it a bit there so that we can make some decisions, some determinations later on in, in time. But we're going to go through maybe create a matrix of here's all to begin with. Here's all of the different types of document information we have. Is it under our control? 
Um, can we version it? Can we approve it? Um, do we keep it? Do we give it to our customer? Where might we store it? Where do we store it? And you can go through all this, kind of figure out. You just want to know where you're at and what you're doing. Believe me, you have far more sources of document information than you're aware of. All right. So after document information, you know, again, last time we kind of talked a little bit about uh, some of the support services. We talked a little bit about um, purchasing. So, you know, purchasing is the next one that we roll into. They call it control of uh, externally provided products and services. In any case, lots and lots of syllables. Beautiful thing about lots of syllables is if you make your money selling a standard, you put more syllables in there. You make it a little bit longer. You got more pages. You can charge a little bit more. Um, but, you know, so our purchasing process we talked about a little bit a couple episodes ago but we'll give a brief overview you want to know who you buy from how have you approved that supplier they might be like well we don't approve our suppliers like you did <laughs> either you have folks going totally rogue buying stuff completely without your knowledge or you're purchasing it and telling someone in accounting uh, we just purchased it and you need to make sure that uh that they get paid and then the stuff comes in so we want to document what we're doing Maybe we can tidy up that process a little bit to get a few more controls in place. We want to, the key thing we need to worry about with our purchasing process is if we're getting poor quality from our vendors, we can track it. And that is best tracked through a non-conformance report process. On our TQA Cloud QMS software, um, it's really where the whole company got started in 2013. <clears throat> but um, we track on our non-conformance reports. We let you tag it to your supplier. So... Obviously, I would recommend anyone and everyone use TQA Cloud QMS software for small business. It's a fantastic way to save time and energy. But if you're not using our software, you still need to track this stuff. So what I recommend is that every time you get a supplier that is late, ships the wrong product, forgets to have some of the paperwork in there, whatever it may be, you record that as a non-conformance report and you tag it against that supplier name. What that's going to allow you to do is go back a year year from now, say, all right, how many times exactly did we have an issue with this supplier? Oh, well, we had 10 nonconformances with this supplier last year. And you might think, well, that's terrible. But maybe you have two or three shipments from them a day. Okay, well, now 10 is maybe not quite so bad if it's, you know, one out of a thousand, um, you know, a thousand times. But that's the point is you can't know this until you have the data. Otherwise, it's anecdotal information, and I'll prove it to you. All right. So anecdotal information. We all think we remember how many times something happened or didn't happen, and we are all really pretty bad at doing that. Um, I guess maybe some people are the exception to the rule, but we're all pretty bad at remembering it. <clears throat> all of you were kids once upon a time. Now, as a child, so let's think about this, your childhood memories of Christmas. So we're talking about anything maybe before high school, because maybe, you know, once you get into high school, your, your perception of things changes a little bit. Well, and you probably don't really remember much from before you're about five or six years old. So that really gives us like maybe a five or six year time span that we're remembering childhood Christmas. Just stay with me. I'm going somewhere. And you might tell yourself every year we did, we always did. This is how we did it. But then you go back and you look at your family photos and you only observe that particular tradition for two years, maybe just one year. You know, I've thought about this with, uh, again, thinking back to childhood memories. I grew up spending a lot of time with my grandfather and we go to the cattle auctions and, you know, we, uh, 
uh, tend the cattle in the field and all these different stuff. And so I'll be talking to my boys now that we've got a little bit of land and we got some horses and doing this stuff. And I'll tell my boys, well, my papa always used to. But then I really got to thinking, I'm like, is it he always used to or I simply remember it occurring once? But it was a significant memory. So I then said he always did. The same thing happens in our shops, in our organizations, is something may only happen two or three times, but it was significant enough that we record it mentally as always, or often, or consistent, or frequent. So our memories, that anecdotal information, kind of what we talk about with each other, it's just not that reliable. We've got to have the data to go back to. So we want to record those issues in Form Sports. So... Now, performance reporting is one of the next processes that we take a look at when we go through this gap assessment. And I, I like to call it control of non-conforming output. Hmm, sorry, <laughs> I hit a button there on the computer and killed myself on the stream for a second. Um, so we talk about not controlling output, not control of non-conforming outputs. I really like that term. And the reason is because I'd like to use the same process for every non-conformance I can. The only exception here um, comes into play when we're dealing with, uh, say, health and safety events. Because health and safety events, we're collecting employee information. There may be medical records associated with it. Um, you know, this is protected information legally, so we do have to treat that differently sometimes. Um, so with the exception of safety events involving employees, I like to use the exact same system for all of our non-conforming outputs. So we're going to use the same non-conformance uh, reporting system for identifying our supplier non-conformances as we are <coughs> for our um, our product non-conformances. Um, and it really, really works well. The The way that we have found that you can more appropriately kind of segregate these is rather than having multiple forms for everything. So this is something that a lot of folks do. They'll have a customer complaint form. But a customer complaint is actually hard to identify sometimes. How do you know the customer's complaining or the customer's just informing you that it didn't work out well? Like, where's that line? And I've had this argument with folks where, like, the customer wasn't complaining. They're just telling us it wasn't right. Is that complaining? I don't know. I mean, it kind of depends on how you determine a complaint. All right. So I don't like to use the term customer complaint for that reason. What I will do is I'll track my non-conformance reports by one of three types. This is internal, meaning we found it. It was our issue. Had nothing to do with anyone outside of our company. Internal non-conformance report. Second one, external non-conformance report. External non-conformance report could be a supplier, could be a contractor you had. Heck, could be that, uh, you know, someone was drunk and drove through your gate. Um, it was an external issue. Clearly, our gate was not designed to be run through. Um, so it is not conformance. We want to track when that happened because otherwise we will completely forget when that gate got run through before. And maybe we need to know about it. And yes, I have seen this exact issue occur. And this is what I told them to do. Um, then the third one is customer identified. We actually spent a lot of time going back and forth to determine how we wanted to call this third class of non-conformance report. Well, we decided on customer identified. And so that's it. It is any non-conformance where the customer made you aware of it. We want to avoid these whenever possible, right? But that's another one we want to track. The next thing that we do is we like to track our non-conformance reports by what department um, it occurred in or what department that maybe was responsible for it. 
kind of various different companies, but you got an option there. So maybe this was a shipping receiving error. Maybe this was an admin error. Maybe this was an operations error, wherever it was. Then I like to go through and track them also on what we call our defect codes, um, tier one, tier two defect codes. The idea is that you, maybe you've got 10 tier one defect codes, but each tier one code could have 10, 15 different options on there as well. You don't have to go that involved. Our QMS software does, but we do have a couple of clients that say, Kyle, tier two defect codes, that's more complicated than we need. We don't care. We're just doing a single tier one defect code. And this might be like, uh, this was a final inspection error. This was a uh, material defect. Uh, this was, you know, a, a, a spill or whatever it may be. But we've got those top, top level things that might go wrong. <clears throat> when you give yourself enough codes within the single form, you no longer need multiple forms. Um, it confuses people. If they've got to pick, I mean, people don't like to make decisions. And we've got a limited number of decisions when we make before we say, screw it, I don't care. That's not what we want to happen. Because for a small business, your non-conformance reporting system is hugely important. Um, non-conformance reporting system falls under, for the way I like to operate, a lot of our monitoring and, of monitoring and measuring of our management system, which is another one of the processes we have to look at. How do you know things are working well? Well, if you've got a good system in place, which, hey, you will after you go through this whole process, we're going to make an assumption. And that assumption is that we are operating compliant to our procedures and our customer requirements unless we document a nonconformance. Now, I love the big dashboard with all the different little color check boxes on it and all the little different charts and graphs to look at it and to tell me when and where there's a problem. The problem there is that takes a lot of manpower that takes a lot of computers a lot of data collection that takes a lot to do and a small business with less than 100 employees less than 50 definitely less than 20 you don't have the spare time to document every compliance versus every non-compliance so if we simply document our non-conformances with the assumption of compliance otherwise, it saves us a lot of time there and it helps us identify when we have problems, which is really what we care about a lot of the time. Unless we're going through some big push for improvement, we wanna make sure we have no non-conformances. Once you're really good at no non-conformances, that's the opportunity to say, hey, we might have a little bit of extra bandwidth available here to do better. But until you get there, we wanna minimize our problems. But really, that's what the non-conformance reporting process is good for, and that is the primary means of uh, monitoring measuring of your management system. Uh, the next big piece comes into when we take a look at things like our annual management review, our internal audit, um, review our KPIs, review of our quality objectives, which all of this happens in the management review, and the analysis of our non-conformance uh, reporting data gets funneled into our management review as well. So... All of these things kind of start to get tied together a little bit. I really, really tend to blur the line between our non-conformance reporting and monitoring monitoring of our management system. It's um they they really really pair well together. Um, so then we kind of move on from there, and then we're going to take a look at our internal audit process. Now, again, if you're a small business, odds are you probably don't do your own internal audit. It's tough to do. I mean, it really is. It's really tough to conduct your own internal audit. While 9001 does not have an objectivity clause on it, it's really hard to do an audit if you're not objective. There's always kind of a little 
question in the back of your mind that uh or back of your auditor's mind or someone else's mind that well he just didn't find the problems in his area <clears throat> that may be intentional and that may be unintentional but it is likely to happen look the fact is if you've done your job day in and day out for the last year and you have not found the problems already how are you going to find the problems when you audit yourself i mean let's just be realistic there I'm not saying it can't be done it's tough to do so if you're a small business, odds are you're probably going to outsource the internal audit to someone else like us at Texas Quality Assurance. It's one of the services we provide, have provided all the way back since uh, 2016. Um, so, yeah, internal audits can be outsourced. And again, you need to document if that's what you do or what you intend to do in the future. I have done it before where we did do a self-audit. This is what they call a first-party audit internal audit if you contract someone like texas quality assurance for your internal audit we call that a second party internal audit um but i have done the first party internal audit and oh my gosh it was a painful process absolutely painful process to make sure that we had objectivity i had to train five other people as auditors now initially we did this to kind of save some money but by the time you thought about the amount of time it took me to train these folks the amount of time they had to be away from their regular job to get trained then the amount of time we all had to be away from our regular job to go audit each other so that no one was auditing their own stuff Ugh. we would have been a lot better off hiring a, a trained and impartial external um, auditor to do our internal audit so kind of spiel an internal audit you make the decisions it just makes sense for your shop it's really what it boils down to. We can talk about what all's involved in the internal audits in the weeks to come. Whew. All right, we're getting close here. Let me see how much time. Yeah, I got a few minutes left here. Good, not running over. We're going to talk next about our corrective action process. Corrective actions incredibly important. Corrective actions, please, 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 do not confuse with non-conformance reporting. Our non-conformance reporting is data collection we are recording what went wrong and what we did about it right then and there so an example we'll go back to the purchasing thing it's kind of an easy example let's say our supplier sent the wrong material okay well we're going to record non-conformance report defect code wrong material tag it to the supplier move on then we're going to go to our the disposition phase of our non-conformance report. So we've got the identification and we get disposition. Disposition will probably code this as a rework because we had to rework that purchasing process. We call up the supplier and we say, look, you sent the wrong stuff. You need to send the right stuff and we're in a hurry. So get it here today. And so they do a hot shot. They send it over, take the old stuff away. Cool. Did we eliminate the source of the problem? No. Maybe there's nothing to eliminate. Maybe it's just something bad happened. Bad things happen sometimes when you have processes to check them because we know bad things happen unexpectedly. But right then and there, we're not doing anything other than recording what happened, done, non-conformance report finished, get your manager, quality manager to sign off on it, you know, saying, yes, this was done and we're done. If that's the one and only time that happens, cool. We had a bad situation. We handled it well. We documented that we handled it well. Life's good. Move on. We made no change to our system. On the other hand, if this supplier has repeat issues sending us the wrong material and we find other suppliers have repeat issues sending us the wrong material, then we kind of got to scratch our heads. Like, 
I know the level of customer service has really declined since COVID. Lord knows if you go to any fast food joint, it's immediately aware that uh, level of service has, uh, has declined. But man, do we really expect that that much level of service has declined across all industries? Probably not. It just doesn't seem rational that we would be having these issues occur this frequently from this many different sources. Maybe if it was a single supplier that kept messing up, maybe we just need to find a new supplier. But if we're having this across multiple suppliers, maybe we've got an issue. So then we say, you know what? This is something that needs fixed. We need, we need to fix this so it never happens again. See, that one-time fix, we don't like it. We dealt with it. We moved on. There's really nothing to fix. But here, we've really got to fix this issue. So then we're going to do a corrective action. We're going to take a look at it, and we're going to try to identify what's the root cause. Why did this happen? And maybe what we determine is we are doing a poor job of communicating to our suppliers. Our purchase order is putting our internal part number and a one-line description on it, but we're not giving the material thickness. We're not giving, you know, maybe specifics of the alloy we want. We're not giving specific tolerances. Maybe there's certain certifications that we want with it that might be documented in our inventory management system, but it's not making its way to the purchase order that's going out to our suppliers. So our suppliers are just doing the best they can to give us what we're asking for. Oh, well, we can fix that problem. Okay, so now we're going to change our pr procedure and we're going to state very specifically what information we want on there and don't want on there. Maybe since our purchase order is pulling from our inventory system, maybe we need to recode a few things in our inventory system or, you know, maybe put some of these details in a different field so it'll show up on our purchase order. Who knows? There's going to be things that can be done so that this does not occur again. That, my friends, is a corrective action. So we're going to identify the root cause, poor communication of requirements on the purchase order. Then we're going to the corrective action. And let's say in this instance, we uh, uh, recoded our inventory so that these specific requirements are included in the description column rather than the notes column because the description column gets printed on our purchase order. So that's what we did to change it. And then we confirmed that we went through all of our inventory items, made those updates, then is our question is our corrective action done yet? Maybe yes, maybe no. Um, but these are things we can do. So again, as we're going through this gap assessment, like, well, yes, this is kind of where we want to go. What we want to ask folks during this gap assessment is, well, what do you do to prevent things from happening again in the future? And they may say, well, we just tell them about it and tell them not to do it again. Mm, okay, cool. Well, hey, at least we're communicating. All right. That's that's one step in the right direction. Maybe they're going to come back and say, oh, well, you know, we just issue a non-conformance report every time. And, you know, that fixes the issue. Mm, OK, cool. Well, at least I know what you're doing. We'll figure out the rest later. Or maybe they they're talking about like, like yeah, we do uh, this whole 8D analysis on, on all of these and da, 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 da. And, you know, your team's got a process in place. Maybe it's a little bit overkill for the process, but they hey, they got a process in place. And then the follow-up question, if you, if you ever feel that the process is too complicated for what it might need to be, ask that question. Do you think maybe that's a little too complicated? Do you, Would it be more helpful to you if this was an easier or simpler process? Oh, no, this works really well because of ABC. Cool. I'm not going to break it. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. All right, so we keep trucking. The last real big section we move into 
and you'll notice I've skipped over our operational stuff because we'll talk about that separately soon. Um, but then we're going to talk about continual improvement. Continual improvement is one of these hard ones to kind of measure and audit. It's like, how do you prove you're continually improving? Um, and especially if you've got a good business model and the industry is fairly stable, um, I guess you're not working in oil and gas, <laughs> but uh, um, if the industry is fairly stable and business has been going good for years, you may be like, we're just not trying to do a lot of things. We're kind of happy where we're at. Um, it's hard to show continual improvement. One of the ways to show continual improvement is your corrective actions. So just like I said, our non-conformance report process and our monitoring and measuring really have a huge overlap, <clears throat> again, more specifically for small business, our corrective action process and our continual improvement processes are massively overlapped. So some other things you can pull in for evidence of continual improvement might be if you had responses to customer feedback. Maybe if you added a new product line, maybe if you made a change to one of your products, um, maybe if you started hiring a new group of people, a new department, any of these things can all be continual improvement. And they need to be referenced in the management review. But those are kind of basic continual improvement. But that's what we want to ask is what good things have you put in place this year that weren't there last year? And people will tell you what are changes that have been made. So anytime we talk about continual improvement, Another term for it is change. What did we change to make things better? Which again, is why the corrective action process overlaps that continual improvement process because you don't have a corrective action if you didn't make a change. But that's it kind of from the top level of all of our management system processes. So next time, what we're going to do is we're going to discuss some of those operational processes and really what we're looking for. But that's kind of it for today. I'm about out of time today. I don't want to jabber on forever on these things. Well, actually I do, but uh, you probably don't want to listen to it for hours on end. Um, so go listen to your, you know, your crime junkie podcast, your music, whatever else you listen to, go check it out. But thank you for tuning in today to Quality Matters. Um, again, if you love what we do, you want to support what we're doing here, the easiest, best thing you can do is go check us out online at texasqa.com. That's for Texas Quality Assurance. Um, Check it out. If there are any of the products and services there that you think might be of value to you, give us a call. Um, if not, just follow us on LinkedIn. We post a lot of fun memes, goofy stuff on there along with the quality stuff. So just share something. Let someone else know that we're out there and we're here to help. So hope you guys have uh, enjoyed this, got something good from it, and we will talk again soon.